podcast is brought to you by New Hope Baptist Church. For more information, visit the website newhope.net.au or follow us on social media. morning. It's a delight to be with you here this morning. This year is a really big year for my mum. She turns 80 years old and she's such a wonderful, wise, white-haired woman. So it's really hard for me to get used to the fact that sometimes she talks like a teenager. Like she'll be telling me a story or relaying some facts and then she'll kind of get to the end and pause and shrug and go, whatever. The first time she did it, I was like, mum, who have you been hanging out with, the kids at the skate park? (laughs) And then I realised she's completely addicted to those BBC crime dramas on television, so maybe she'd heard lots of young kids from Essex going, yeah, man, like, whatever. (laughs) Mum, by the way, if you're watching, I love you, and I'll give you a call this afternoon, it's all fine. I say this with the absolute greatest respect to Peter. But the first time that I read this particular part of his letter, I got to the end and I confessed my first thought was, okay, Peter, like, whatever. We've come to the end of this long section of Peter's letter where he's been talking to various groups of people about how as followers of Jesus we should live in the world. He's talked to citizens living in the midst of empire. He's talked to slaves and their masters. Last week, Alan preached a wonderful sermon, if you haven't caught it yet, if you haven't catched up, it's online, about wives and husbands. And now Peter turns to address all of us. Here's our reading from 1 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 8. Finally, he says, all of you have unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with a blessing. It is for this that you are called, that you might inherit a blessing. For those who desire life and a desire to see good days, let them keep their tongues from evil and their lips from speaking deceit. Let them turn away from evil and do good. Let them seek peace and pursue it. I found this passage hard to hear at first, not because it's so difficult or so novel, but because it's so ordinary. It's so exactly what I would have expected Peter to say to all of us. He hits some big familiar themes, doesn't he? Unity, love, humility, He echoes the familiar warnings of James and Jesus about taming our tongues, and he finishes with a directive to seek peace. And all of these things are such familiar ideas, they're really things that we've heard so many times before. In fact, if I read that Bible reading and I didn't tell you it was from 1 Peter, you might have thought it was legitimately from any other book in the New Testament. And that's when the light begun to go on in my mind, I realised that that is precisely why these verses matter. These are are Peter's basic instructions to all followers of Jesus, no matter our social situation. This is Peter reducing it down for us. He's saying there are eight things we must do. Be unified. Have love for one another. 
be sympathetic, be tender-hearted, be humble. When wrong, respond with a blessing, not a curse. Don't use words to lie and deceive and seek peace. There are two ways of hearing these instructions. The first is to hear them as Peter basically telling us to, well, just be a good person for goodness sake. Be nice, be good, and here's a random list of things that good people do. That's probably how I initially heard. Like, okay, here's Peter telling me to be good yet again, like whatever. The second way of hearing Peter's instructions is to hear them as specific and distinctive behavioural practices that we should engage in. So when he says, have unity, he actually means we should seek and pursue unity and sympathy and love and all the others. Because all of these things, all of these things out of all the things that we could possibly do as people in the world, It's these things that are of the utmost importance. If we do anything, these are the essentials. So the key difference between these two ways of hearing Peter's instructions is that in the first, we focus on this really fuzzy general principle of just be a good person. Trusting that if we aim to be a good person in most situations, hopefully we will actually be one. And in the second, Peter is saying, Focus. Focus here. Practice this. So here's an analogy. I'm assuming this morning, for the sake of the person sitting next to you, that you cleaned your teeth before you came to church this morning. Because being a good person is like being a clean person. You see, being clean isn't a fixed characteristic. Believe it or not, sometimes you're not always clean. Being clean is something that you have to maintain. You've got to work at it each and every day. You don't wake up every morning and say, well, I'm a clean person. Don't need to have a shower. Don't need to clean my teeth today. I'm clean. It's all good. So when someone directly points out to you, discreetly, hopefully, that you've got something stuck in your teeth, you're not likely to say, what do you mean I've got something stuck in my teeth? How dare you? I'm a clean person. And it's the same with being a good person. You're only a good person if you actually practice being a good person. I don't want this somewhat playful analogy to undermine the significance of Peter's message this morning. So let me jump to the absolute other end of the spectrum, to a serious example. At the time of the Second World War, the vast majority of Germans were Christian. More than half of the German population was Protestant. More than 40% was Catholic. So around 90% of Germans were Christian. There are two very well-known stories about Christians who resisted the Nazis. I'm sure you've heard these names. The story of the Dutchwoman Corrie Ten Boom and the German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Of course, there were many other Christians, not just these two, that resisted the Nazis, but these are the stories we seem to tell and remember. It took me a really long time to realise the uncomfortable reality that the majority of the German population, and therefore the majority of good and virtuous German Christians, supported Hitler, or at least didn't actively resist Nazism. 
It's a really sobering thought to imagine that there were probably guards at Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen and Dachau who identified as being good Christians. Reflecting on this, Professor Richard Beck, a psychologist and Christian at Abilene University says, the issue here is one of spiritual formation and political resistance. When things get hard and sacrificial, like being sent to a Nazi concentration camp, willpower is an anemic resource to reliably guide you to the light. Political resistance isn't some kind of snap decision, it's a product of spiritual formation, habits of identity, habits of thinking and behaviour so deeply ingrained that when the hurricane wind starts to blow, you're so deeply grounded, so rooted, that you're able to stay upright. Add to this how when a community stands collectively together, it makes it easier for the members of the entire group to stand. We help each other resist. As I listen to those words, it makes complete sense to me now why, why Peter would begin with unity and sympathy. In times of persecution, we're only able to stand if we stand together. And we will need deep sympathy for one another because inevitably there will be those among us who will find standing at all incredibly difficult. You might be thinking at this point, yeah, come on, Katrina, that's rather an extreme example, and you'd be right. But consider this. Many of you know that the Nazis handed out yellow triangles to identify different types of prisoners. The Jews wore two yellow triangles, making a star of David. Red triangles were for political prisoners, like communists. Pink was for gay prisoners. And the purple triangle was for Jehovah's Witnesses. The only other faith group other than the Jews specifically targeted and persecuted by the Nazis and sent to concentration camps. Why did the Nazis persecute Jehovah's Witnesses and what enabled them to stand? Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses' spiritual formation included four specific practices. One, don't vote in elections. Two, don't pledge your allegiance to a flag or a nation. Three, don't run or hold political office. And four, don't serve in the military. Consequently, the Jehovah's Witnesses refused to do military service in the army. They refused to sing German patriotic songs. They refused to say Heil Hitler. And the Nazis found that so intolerable that they began to persecute the Jehovah's Witnesses and sent them to camps. In fact, Jehovah's Witnesses could very easily leave the camps once they got there. All they had to do was sign a piece of paper, a piece of paper that was an oath to Hitler and the Nazi state. But most of the Jehovah's Witnesses who saw the reality of what was happening in the camps still refused to sign that piece of paper and walk free. So yes, this is an extreme situation, but some, like many Jehovah's Witnesses, were able to stand, while the majority of Christians did not. And the reason is we weren't sufficiently spiritually formed within ourselves to withstand the persecution and difficulty and challenges in that moment. 
the church had failed to ground Christians in the practices of the faith, to root them deeply enough in the habits of the gospel, in the patterns of life that were Christ-like, that when the crunch came, they just couldn't stand. I've talked a lot in this sermon series about 1 Peter, about the fact that he's writing to exiles, to exiles who are living underneath the tyranny of the midst of the Roman Empire, suffering persecution and um, having their lives put at risk and their livelihoods because of their allegiance to Jesus. So given that, it's not surprising that Peter wants them to be in no doubt what the practice of faith looks like under those circumstances. You see, there is a world of difference between being a good Christian in the safe confines of your heart where you think warm, loving thoughts about other people and being the kind of Christian who is so focused on practicing the faith, overcoming and developing muscles deep in their body that enables them to be with Jesus so that in the moment they might become more like Jesus in order to do what Jesus did. There's a radical difference between those two things. Remember those words from James, who puts it in the absolute starkest of terms when he writes, faith, if it has no works, if it's not worked out in practice, it's dead. It's dead. Today is Palm Sunday, and I can't help but hear the resonances between what Peter is telling us in this letter and Jesus. Today is the day that Jesus unlikely decided that having some kind of an outdoor musical would be the best way to get the word out that he was in fact the king. See, in the laying down of the cloaks and the waving of the tree branches and the disciples shouting was all designed to communicate that Jesus is the king. Not that he will be the king, but that he is the king in that moment. Because kings don't parade before they become king, they parade after they've become king. So Jesus is saying here that every single action that he's taken, every time he's forgiven and healed and fed people, every time he's taught and instructed and told parables, that these weren't just a preview of the kingdom of God, this was the kingdom of God breaking out right in front of their very eyes. Then after the story of the parade, Luke tells us in his gospel that something unexpected happens. Right after the parade, this King Jesus, well, he loses it. He looks out over the city and he bursts into tears, weeping over it, broken-hearted, grieving. And what he's grieving as he looks over this great city of Jerusalem, this city of God, is that it's full of people who have no idea What makes for peace? Jesus says, even you, even if you had only recognised on this day the things that make for peace, the things that actually make for peace, the habits, the patterns, the choices on a daily basis that make for real peace. I wonder this morning, do you know what makes for peace? 
actually makes for peace? And what kind of peace is Jesus talking about? Well, of course, he's talking about God's great big shalom. This extraordinary theme in the Bible from the beginning and to the end. What God wants for all of us is shalom. To live in harmony with God, to experience fullness of life, to be whole, to flourish, to know delight. In other words, shalom is the way things ought to be. It's the way things God designed things to be before that terrible disruption that happened in the garden. And shalom is what Jesus, the Prince of Shalom, the Prince of Peace, will restore when God, God's kingdom comes in power and in full. And in this moment, as he weeps, God realises that in his earthly ministry, as it comes to his end and he faces his death, his heart is so broken because despite everything that he's done to manifest the peace of God, to teach people about the peace of God, to invite them into the peace of God, that we are still so lost, still so blind, that we still don't even know what makes for peace. And so he weeps. He weeps for a devoted group of God-fearers who have traded living with God's shalom, living out of God's shalom, for merely having their sins managed. So they can tell themselves when they look in the mirror each day, I'm good, I'm a good person. Do you even know what makes for peace? And if you do, I beg you this morning to listen to Peter, to listen to Jesus' tear-filled pleading and to practice the ways of peace, to pursue peace and all of the practices of faith that Peter has named for us this morning with everything you've got. Because having raised you to new life in your baptism, this is Jesus' dream for you. This is what Jesus wants you to experience everywhere and in every place every day. You see, as we stand on the verge of this holy week, I invite you to remember that the Easter story isn't just about God dealing with your sin. Easter is about God's plan to restore shalom. This is the big story of the Bible. That God's kingdom, when it comes in fullness, all things will be restored. All things will be renewed and put right. And once again, the world and all who dwell in it will live hand in hand with God and we will delight in God and in one another and we will enjoy the gift of our humanness to its fullness. You see, the promise of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday is that when God becomes king, he becomes king not just to deal with our old sin and cure our old diseases and deal with the bag of guilt we've been dragging around with us. He will come in mercy and he will come in justice, and he will judge the living and the dead so that finally the past becomes the past and we can actually live in peace, a peace that surpasses all of our understanding and all of our imagining. 
My prayer is that this Easter, you would know what it means to actually experience peace and that you would hear the good news that Peter gives us, that we can live in God's shalom if we commit ourselves to pursuing it rigorously as part of our daily lives. Let's pray. Loving God, you are so gracious towards us. You're gracious when we don't even know what we don't know. You're gracious when we lose focus and when we lose the plot. You're gracious when we turn your amazing gospel into a manifesto of beliefs rather than a way of living. God, in those places in our lives where we know we don't know what we're doing, but where we know we have no peace, where we say one thing and we do another, where we're held captive by fear and held down by an extraordinary great weight, in those parts of our lives that we come weeping over this morning, we want to invite you to show us another way. As this holy week begins, we want to take up our cross again, Lord, so that we might truly follow you, laying down our lives alongside of yours at Calvary, so that we might be raised with you, Jesus, to the wonder of God's shalom. Bring peace, Lord, your beautiful, joyous, costly peace. Show us what it means day by day to live in this peace. Gently lead us, Lord, as we seek to live out our faith in fear and trembling. Help us to be the peacemakers the world aches for this Easter. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.